this is your second game, correct? As far as I could tell. This is um, the second title I've worked on, the first one that I've shipped. Okay. And it's all kind of been like horror, visual. Well, actually, the first one, I didn't do too much research on it. I know it was a visual novel, but I couldn't tell if it was horror or not. Um, so was it or was it just kind of focused on like the narrative? Mostly narrative. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what kind of drove you to that? What was the, the driving thing that brought you to visual novels over like any other genre? Uh, it's easier for a single person to make a visual novel than a full game so that's kind of why i stuck to visual novels it's um quicker turnaround time easier development and i like lots of dialogue in my games okay so i have to admit when i first hit you up i really wasn't i knew it was a very popular game i knew a lot of people really enjoyed it i wasn't really sure what to expect with it because i've never myself played a visual novel and i wasn't really sure exactly how the story and the premise of the game was what kind of genre it fell in because there's a certain i guess you could say stigma that goes along with visual novels at this point and then I kind of dived into it and there's a lot of a lot of layers to this game. It's like it parodies kind of a dating sim, but then it's a visual novel with a ton of narrative. It has a horror element to it. There's a lot of layers to this game. So kind of walk me through that one really quick. What was what was the driving force behind that? Where would the idea come from? So ultimately, aesthetically, where the game came from was it was kind of a love letter to all of those things. Mm-hmm. So I'm someone who likes old school anime, likes dating sims, likes horror, likes Lovecraftian horror. Mm. So the reason why I hopefully uh, did justice to all of those things is that they're things that I all enjoy. And so I pulled things that I like from each of those sort of genres uh, and try to wrap it all up into one as opposed to necessarily trying to make fun of or put down. Like none of this came from a place of like mockery. Yeah. Like I wasn't necessarily trying to put down dating sims mm. or or Lovecraft. I, I do enjoy everything that was incorporated, so I hope that shined through. As for where the idea came from, that's my boss. Because for the um Sucker for Love used to be a sort of game jam type thing. Mm-hmm. There was two versions of it, the big one that came out recently, and then a 40-minute one that came out as part of a 12-game collection, the Drax Collection 2. Mm-hmm. And for that, the theme of the collection was Lovecrafting. Mm-hmm. So we needed to make games that had a love mechanic, a crafting mechanic, and then Lovecraftian horror. And since I'm kind of a visual novel anime type dev, um, I wasn't going to be able to make a full crafting system in like 10 days. So I just said, okay, well, what has items that you can make, create, and then use? Because it's kind of like crafting and also has love mechanics and dating sims do. Um, and dating sims are right up my alley since I'm a visual novel dev. And then the only missing part of the puzzle was Lovecraftian horror. And so just clicks together as it's a dating sim about Lovecraftian horrors. Okay. With visual novels, what what engine did you build it on? Was it Game Maker? Was it Unity? I would lean myself towards Game Maker, but I'm not sure. But what did you decide to make it on? I used Game Maker using a plugin called VEngine by XGA Soft. Okay, gotcha. The question comes to mind, like with the prelude and then kind of ramping it up, bringing a lot more content in with the game that came out in January. What's the challenge in kind of bringing in more content? Did you kind of try to evolve different elements of the game or just kind of stick to like the exact same blueprint and just kind of expand on it what was what was the process behind that so that was actually pretty difficult because mm-hmm. this was a game that was only 40 minutes long yeah and i needed to find some way to lengthen it to four hours without repeating myself or getting stuck in formula so i tried to make each chapter of the game feel completely different in tone and mechanics mm-hmm. from each other. So basically, and what I absolutely wanted to avoid was having chapters two with the King in Yellow and chapter three with Auntie Nyan Nyan feel pretty much exactly like chapter one with a new skin, because mm-hmm. I wanted to avoid playing completely straight. So 
for the second chapter, I thought, what if I start putting this love triangle where there's two girls that you can do at once and you have to sort of juggle your attentions between the two and face consequences when you fail to do so. And then for the last one, I thought, hey, what if I just go high Lovecraftian horror, throw the romance out for the entire chapter and then just try to make it as scary and stressful as possible. <laughs> and so to kind of summarize everything I just said, I tried to, in order to lengthen the game, mm -hmm. I, instead of trying to fluff up or repeat what I already had, I try to come up with something new by going at it with the same direction that I originally went at the first one with. So like creating a, a different version of the game for each chapter individually, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. With a game like this, you know, a lot of developers, one of the reasons they kind of avoid RPGs when you make your first game, most of them kind of gravitate towards like a platformer or something like that. A lot of that is because of the like extensive narrative element that comes with an RPG. And obviously, you know, this is a visual novel, so this is even even more narrative. You know, there's way more added on top of that. So what's the challenge when you're creating a game that has so much emphasis on just a narrative driven story, especially one that has choices in it as well? Well, on the developing side making a visual novel can be a little unusual for your team to work with mm -hmm. say comparing with a platformer you can have a prototype for a platformer pretty early on where you have a gray block is your guy the green blocks are the platforms so on and so forth but an issue with a visual novel is until it's 100 percent complete uh, there's nothing to see. Mm -hmm. You can't really have a prototype of a book. Yeah, You can have a first draft, but that's complete all the way through. Mm -hmm. And so it was something to like maybe a, a week or a couple of weeks before the release day that my QA team was even getting a copy of the game. Just because the writing takes so long to do. Yeah. Localization is also kind of tricky. I'm going through that right now. Um, when you have lots of words, there's lots of words that need to be translated and a lot that they need to be formatted for every language. Mm -hmm. And so if this was a simple platformer, I could have just had no localization whatsoever if there was no text on screen. Not, not that there wouldn't be, but just I'd have far less than a story predominantly based on text. And so turnover time, localization efforts. The other hard part about making a visual novel is just how reliant on the writing the game is. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've got bad prose or you're not as funny as you think you are, then you can finish the whole game, release it, and then watch it bomb. Yeah. And when you're prototyping, say, a platformer like Mario 64, they didn't bother making anything for the game mm -hmm. until they were sure that it was fun to handle Mario and all the platforming. Yeah. And you just don't have that uh, safety net with visual novel is, is you only know once you're completely done and once the game is released, if people are going to find it fun or not. With a narrative game like this, when I was looking through, because I myself have actually not played the game as of yet, but looking through like gameplay of it and talking to people who have played the game, there is, you know, that decision making element within it. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how heavily the game really leans into it, like how those decisions kind of unfold as the game kind of progresses. Will it impact, you know, with multiple multiple endings, things like that. So kind of walk me through exactly how that works within the game. And then obviously for me personally, with a story-driven game, what fascinates me is kind of the, the challenge in creating a story that branches out without kind of circling back to to dead ends basically because i know that's a major issue with rpg games is that you branch out to a different story and then all of a sudden it kind of dead ends so how does that work with this game so going into the decision tree the number one most important thing to me was the feeling that the player can do whatever they want mm -hmm. in a way for i wanted the uh, game to feel very organic in the way that you make choices and so if you notice there aren't any dialogue options mm -hmm. In Sucker for Love, not a single one. All of the um, branching that you can do 
and Sucker for Love is 100% based off of things that you do or things that you do not do. Mm. So in lieu of saying like, there, there's no part where like a dialogue box pops up and says Lynetta or Esther. Mm. It's, it's, if you want to choose between Lynetta or Esther, you have to pick their book, yeah. flip to their spell and then do it. And that's, you're making your decision. Okay. It feels a little bit more natural to me. Yeah. That came from a bit of exhaustion with RPGs when 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 the dialogue options pop up on the screen, there's a couple of gripes I have with those. Like the fact that it feels like you're not 100% engaged with the story. It's you're listening, 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 listening. You click a box, then you're back to listening, 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 listening. Not very engaging. Yeah. And then there's also times where like you pick a dialogue option and then it's like 2000 times more cruel than you intended it to be because you only saw like the first line mm. <laughs> and the, the character starts acting past your free will. I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't mean any of that. Yeah. Uh, so basically this was to prevent that from happening. Okay. Where, yeah. Basically anything that happens is 100% a product of the things that you have or have not done. Mm. And I try to make that feel as organic as possible. I did kind of, want to work a th- work thrills into it a little bit like chapter two when you're trying to pick between girls um i did it very um player and streamer minded like i wanted people to be like oh this this you know which which girl do i pick guys mm. talking to the chat or something yeah it's it's a game kind of hand tailored for making people have a good time with their choices yeah because there's um Another element that I also did that I worked into my game is I made sure that any ending was the last one in lots of um, RPGs or choose your own adventure type things. There's decisions decisions that are obviously the wrong one or like you, you pick it and then you get like a very, very short scene and then you die mm-hmm. and or you game over and it goes back to before. And it's like, okay, now do the one that we want you to do. And it feels kind of like they're faking freedom yeah. in the game. When, when you make a decision, they give you a kind of almost want to say lazy bad end and then send you back on track to the story. Mm. Um, I wanted kind of every ending that you could get to feel fully flushed out. And even if it's not a good one, I wanted it to feel like I sort of paid you the respect of giving your decisions a result that if you decided to cheat on Esther the entire time and then get to her at the end, you get one of the funniest endings in the game, Mm. which is the one where the planet crashes into earth so that you can get a smooch in order for this to really feel organic, mm. like you're making decisions and it's mattering as I wanted to make sure that no matter what decision you make, I gave some due diligence to the result. Okay. The first game that I saw, the first visual novel you made was uh, the Chromatos game. So from that to this one, in terms of just like building a story behind the game, building the narrative, what did you learn from the first game? And then how did you kind of evolve it into what you were doing with, uh, with First Date? So what I learned from the first game was to make games about a fourth the size you think they should be mm-hmm. <laughs> just because feature creep bloat, yep. unforeseen issues um all of that will just kind of come up in and really uh slow development mm-hmm. and so when i was going into sucker for love i trimmed everything 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 down on the original demo um when i first pitched it as my submission to the collection there were three girls right off the bat mm-hmm. and like three there have been three times the content but i decided kind of early on Let's just make this as succinct and simple as possible so that I can just knock out whatever I do out of the park instead of trying to stretch myself too thin. And so the two other dates were cut and I restricted the entire game to one room and uh, that paid off. The game was very tight. Mm. I was able to put a lot of polish and lots of humor into it. Uh, It was received well and then I kind of carried that over to the full game where I still only had three locations that repeat throughout the story. And... 
tried to keep like in chapters one, two, and three, you're in the same apartment. And though there are new mechanics to keep each one feeling fresh, mm -hmm. I generally try to keep scope very humble okay. to keep the game doable. This game was born out of kind of a game jam, um, the prelude. So when you go into something like a game jam, because you said you made the prelude in what, like 10 days or so? Yeah. Okay. So when you're making the prelude to when you're making this game right now, what's kind of the pros and cons to kind of having it first born in the game jam and kind of, I guess, just leave it at that. Of translating from a game jam to a full game. Yeah, because I mean, 10 days, you know, there's a major time crunch there. As you'd mentioned, you know, I would imagine the pro would be you can't scope creep. You just have to focus on the core elements and creating those for an enjoyable kind of experience. But there's got to be some cons along the way too, where you can't kind of expand on it or, or focus on a certain thing where you would want to do or... Uh, going from 10 days to four months, that those are still both fairly tight timelines. Yeah. And so the development for those were similar. But yeah, the cons is... I had to let go a lot of things that I really liked and wanted in the game mm -hmm. just because it wasn't going to happen in time. There were some endings that I wasn't able to do as much art for because I just didn't have the time to tell a joke the way I wanted to. So I just had to leave it at telling the joke in a way that it works, lands, and then leave it there because I uploaded the game to Steam like 20 minutes after our announced release time just for an idea of how close we were calling it with uh, the deadline. And so, yeah, you have to let, basically, if it's not urgent and important, it doesn't go in the game. Mm. So you have to say goodbye to characters, plot points, mechanics, jokes, art, all the time to, to make the game ship on time. It's probably the biggest con, but in some lights it could be a pro because there's a saying that if you give an artist forever, they will take forever. <laughs> And so there's a chance that if um, we hadn't had the 10 day concern of the original jam, that I'd still be working on it right now. Okay. I never thought about it that way. That's, that's a great point. Walk me through the core gameplay mechanics in this game, right? So how do they evolve as, as the player progresses through the story? What's kind of the main mechanic to get, you know, get a smooch kind of what's, what's kind of the core gameplay here and how does it unfold? The uh, game mechanic is pretty straightforward. It's a point and click mm -hmm. where you need to arrange the room into a particular orientation. And then when you think you've got everything in the right place, casting the spell by uh, clicking and dragging the uh, ritual slider in the book. Okay. And then if you've done it correctly, it advances the story. If not, tells you what you've done wrong, fixes it. And if it's not a particular section of the game, you don't get consequences. It just says, hey, go turn off the lights, idiot. And then you go fix it, and then you get back into the story. Mm -hmm. That was... So that basically everybody could engage with the game. Mm -hmm. Something like 80% of the people that bought the collection have successfully beaten Sucker for Love, which is a ridiculously high number. For, for reference, the completion rate of the other games, of the second highest completed game was 40%. So by kind of having this straightforward point and click kind of intuitive uh, system with lots of player experience kept in mind, the game is a very player forgiving system that lets people engage with the story, but also not get left behind. The inspiration for the, for the, um, the book itself, though, is um, instructions horror, as I like to call it. It's something that I don't see described very often, but it's like if I was to say, whatever you do, do not look behind you. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing there, but the fact that I've given you that order, you're thinking, well, why why can't I look behind me? Mm. What's there? Why can't I look at it? Yeah. And that suspense is like instructions horror, is that I'm giving you uh, a list of things that you need to do, 
while vaguely alluding to consequences that will happen if you get it wrong. And then the horror is just subtle and it's lying in the, uh, in the manual that you're using to play the game. Okay. So there's lots of vague warnings and lots of uh, minor scares that are just tucked into, you know, every bit of text on the page. Mm-hmm. So that came from these posts that I've seen called HGK 477, where it's people giving like survival guides to everyday tasks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it, it kind of struck me when I was reading them and it's like, Hey, what if there was a survival guide to dating somebody? Wouldn't that be something? And so that's kind of what inspired the books. You know, one thing actually for me with a point and click game, there's a visual novel. Um, when I talk to developers, one of the things they talk about is just player engagement, right? You don't want to let the player get bored. You don't want to let them kind of wander, things like that. With a game like this, with a visual novel and a point and click title combined, I think for me personally, when I ap- would approach that, the first thing that I would be really concerned about is they're going to get bored fast. Just And for you, you know, you have an 80% completion rate. So obviously, you know, you keep them engaged very heavily. So was that a fear going into this? And kind of how did you avoid that if it was? My biggest fear was that people would just not find the um, jokes funny. That's That was the biggest, scariest thing because, you know, I can spend as much time as I want writing a joke. Mm-hmm. And I can laugh at it as much as I want, but if I show it to somebody else and they don't laugh, it's a dud. Yeah. And so um, what I tried to do in order to keep attention is try to respect the player's time. Mm-hmm. So they're, I, I didn't really include fluff. I didn't try to pad the runtime. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's kind of why there's, there's quite a few people wishing that it was longer or wishing that there was more to chew on. Mm-hmm. But the reason I didn't give more is because I didn't have more to say. Yeah. Um, I kind of made my points, told the jokes I wanted to tell, included the plot points that I wanted to tell, and then got the hell out of there. Yeah. So the way I kind of dealt with the players getting bored or unengaged was I, I just lined up the best content I could think of, did it start to finish, and then ended the game before I, uh, people got bored or felt like I was wasting their time. Okay, gotcha. You mentioned that in the prelude, you had three characters initially. Was the two that you ended up cutting, did they end up in the in the game that you released back in January or, or no? No, those are two different ones. Oh. Um, yeah, the, um, the two characters I ended up cutting from the first one are going to be the stars of the second and third titles of Sucker for Love. Oh. So, the yeah, yeah. Answers added, later question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other two that ended up in the first one that I released, sorry, the, the, the most recent one that I released in January mm-hmm. were um, thought up just to help translate from the 40-minute game to the four-hour one is because I feel like that's a lot of time for one character to have the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And so I try to think of what other characters I could work into the story to maybe keep it feeling fresh. And so they were included just for the translation of the game. Okay. With this game specifically, what took the longest for you? Was it the animation? Was it the art behind the game? Or was it the storytelling? I would imagine the storytelling takes like precedent over everything, but where did the kind of the art fall in that category as well? Um, so the thing that took the longest was the writing. Okay. Yeah. Just because the writing is what determines everything else. Mm-hmm. Basically, if I'm not sure if I'm going to include a scene or not, and I don't know if I need the voice actors to give me those voice lines, I don't know if I need to do the art for that scene. I don't know if I need music, so on and so forth. Um, if I have a script that is 100% done, then I can just move on and I know exactly what assets I need from that point on. Mm-hmm. But it's always very intimidating to sort of put down the script and say, okay, this is done. I'm not going to touch it ever again mm-hmm. because 
I mean, what I was writing at a half a year ago, I'm still rereading and rereading now for localization. Mm. So it's, it's very intimidating knowing that you're going to be reading whatever you write no less than like 50 times throughout development. So it better be good. Yeah. <laughs> and so that sort of fear makes it take fairly long to feel like you're ready to put it down. You know, you mentioned localization. There's a major challenge when you're doing something like that, especially for a game like this, because it's so focused on that narrative. And with localization, you know, one thing could mean something different in uh, halfway across the world. So when you approach localization, there's got to be so much time that just goes into trying to reword certain things to make them, you know, translate in a different language and so how do you approach that how much are you leaning into it and how much do you want localization to be part of this game there is a lot of demand from non-english speaking uh players mm. for it localized so i do think it's pretty vital to include it um we are outsourcing the localization so i'm not translating myself okay i'm not a. I don't know i know i, I mostly know english and <laughs> me too and just a, yeah and just a touch of spanish and that's it so um, we are outsourcing localization mm. for another company, so hopefully they appreciate the humor. Okay, but there are considerations on my end for localization. Yeah. Like if I include text in an image, mm -hmm. then if it's baked in, then I need to redraw that image for every single language that the game is localized into. So it kind of steers you away from uh, baking text into images and finding creative ways to have it be code instead of uh, like a PNG. Yeah, because you can change code on the fly as needed, but it's far harder to edit a image for multiple languages than it is to edit a line of code for multiple languages. You know, I never really realized it. I, I was talking to a developer uh, from, I think it was Thailand uh, a couple months back, and he was talking to me about localization and the majority of players, I think it's like I think 80% of players across the world, or maybe it was a small 70 or 80, somewhere in that range, it was a very high percentage, don't speak English. And it never really struck me till he said that number, but just like the sheer volume of like the industry at this point and the focus on kind of creating a game that can translate, you never even think about it when you're on like the player side of it. But as a developer, it's it's a big, big part of the industry, especially with how large the industry is at this point, I guess. That's not really a question, I guess. That's just me rambling. But <laughs> but it's just it's a wild part of the industry. So I I I really I appreciate, you know, the thought process behind like you can't put it into an image. It has to be coded on top of it. So there's there's just a lot of elements that fascinated me especially with this game because i love storytelling games so this one kind of once i got into the research behind it i was like oh shit, this game is this it's pretty cool so with that in mind um i guess the one thing that really fascinates me is like the first thing i thought of when i thought of a visual novel obviously was there's a lot of like sexual stigmas behind the genre which a lot of developers see that and they steer clear of it so for you you said you enjoy it, you know, you said you like dating sims, stuff like that. So obviously you have that attraction to it where you want to try to put it in a, a good light. Was there any kind of hesitation to kind of dive into it and bring this game to life? Kind of what was the thought process behind it? So there was a little bit of fear because this was a submission to a horror collection that had some pretty heavy hitters to my left and right. Mm. Like we had the guy who made World of Horror also submitting to the same collection. The guy who made Dusk was also in the same collection. The guy who later went on to make encryption was in the same collection. So to kind of look at these, you know, rock stars of the of the horror industry submitting honest efforts to make a scary game 
to the collection and then for me to be like hi i'm turning in a dating sim mm. uh was a little intimidating i was kind of worried that mine would be the dud that people either wouldn't get it or that i didn't meet people's expectations with horror mm -hmm. so I, I kind of tried to pull out all the stops to make sure that people knew that i wasn't phoning it in that i was legitimately trying to make a cool dating sim yeah i feel like there's lots you can do with uh with dating sims and while they've kind of gotten bad press i feel like ultimately love and romance is something that is a universally relatable concept mm -hmm. you know not not everyone wants to shoot a gun and kill someone but i'm sure everyone would like to fall in love so i think dating sims are fairly untapped as a genre of game you don't really see a whole lot of triple a dating sims coming out these days i was gonna say i don't think i've seen any at this point in a long long time um the the only one i can think of is probably my favorite game and that's Catherine by atlas okay with this game i think something that comes to mind for me i guess a, a drawing a comparison right um in terms of just future development because you mentioned you already have like a two a second and a third title planned at this point yes okay so with a game like this drawing comparison i would think of like how five nights of freddy's evolved because at first it was just the cameras and then it expanded and now the game that's out now i believe you can like wander around an entire mall and it's like super super engaging so for you specifically is that something you want to do with this game where you kind of you bring in more elements you make it more engaging you make it more immersive or do you want to stick to kind of that visual novel blueprint and paying homage to those different genres that you kind of wanted to bring into the first prelude so i kind of want to completely avoid any path i've already tread mm -hmm. with each um game so instead of expanding upon the first one i'll be pulling it back to zero and then going down a different path with it okay. so yeah yeah i'm trying to keep it feeling fresh each time um each time you boot up a new installment i want it to feel I basically want you to feel just as blind as you were the first time you booted up the first game. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Five Nights at Freddy's as an example. Uh, with the second one, they did make pretty radical changes to the game, like taking away the doors, adding the mask. But uh, in principle, you kind of knew what you were getting into the second you booted up the game the second time around. Because there's going to be animatronics coming to get you. you got a task juggle in the meantime. Um, and if you mess up, they're going to scream in your face. And um by the fourth game i think people kind of got wise to the, to the setups of the game yeah and you kind of saw people not getting as scared or as interested with the game mm -hmm. so basically i want to instead of expanding or re-envisioning what i've already done i just want to try something completely new but with the same sort of inspirations that went to the first one when you say completely new can you kind of expand on that one for me like how how sure so, for instance, the second game, uh, as a small little teaser, I think you're the first person to ask about it, so I think you're the first person that gets to hear. Um, the, <laughs> um, the second, the first game, the, the scares were all about the monsters, um, sorry, the, the, the Lovecraftian gods, mm -hmm. the danger of being around them, the spells that you're casting, and so most of the horror comes from either them or your spells. Okay. But this time around, um, variant theme of Lovecraftian um, stories, the hazards are actually multiple humans this time around in the in the situation of a home invasion. Okay. So you've got a book, you've got your god, and you're trying to stay alive while these guys are creeping around your house trying to find and kill you. Hmm. 
And so now there's room to room uh, travel. Um, the objects that you need for your rituals are littered about your house. And so are these bad guys. And so you're trying to move from room to room while being wise to changes. Like if you left a room and the lights were off, but you turn around and now they're on, it means there's someone in there. And you, if you walk in there, you're dead. So it's, it's, it's a very um, thrilling, chilling person versus person kind of story this time around. Okay. What's the content schedule kind of look like for first day right now? Is it, is it done? And then you're just moving on to the sequel at this point, kind of what's, what's your content map look like for this year? So, uh, I'm going to crank out localization and maybe porting okay. for a sucker for love first date. And then as soon as that's done, we'll hopefully get, be getting sucker for love second date out this year. Okay. So you'd mentioned porting. Is that something you can expand on at this point? Or is that kind of, you know? Yes, I think so. Okay. This is going to be unofficial because I don't know what my boss wants. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we were eyeballing Nintendo Switch first. Okay, gotcha. Is this game, so something that fascinates me is a Steam Deck came out back in, I think it was end of February. Um, and I was super excited by it because it's such a big opportunity for, for developers to really showcase their work. When you're making a game like this, I'd imagine, I didn't check, so I'm not sure if it is or not, but is it... Is it Steam Deck compatible? And if it is, is that something you kind of focus on as a developer in the back of your head, like hitting on those checks to make sure that it lines up with what Steam Deck needs in terms of requirements? Or are you not worried about that? You just want it on Steam for PC and then kind of porting it down the road? I have seen people playing it on Steam Deck, so I assume it's somewhat compatible. Okay. I have not QA'd it at this time, mm -hmm. but I've seen a couple of people playing it on their Steam Deck mm -hmm. and they haven't reported an issue. So it seems to be working. Okay. With a point and click, is that much easier to uh, translate over to controller compatibility or is it much harder? A little bit, a little bit. There's a little bit of um, incompatibility between the controller and a map. Like you, you've been, if you're around computers, you've been pointing and clicking involuntarily all this time. Mm -hmm. But as a controller, there's a couple things that you need to do to make it feel a little bit better. Like you need to tune sensitivity so that it feels natural snapping two mechanics need to be worked in to help with the precision yeah you can't really click and drag the same way that you can with a mouse so these kind of considerations need to be thought of if th this was i think a quick and dirty translation over which is fine i wasn't approached to make a steam deck thing but if it's working it's working okay good to know <laughs> but for like switch it'll probably be more fine-tuned so that it feels just as tight as it does with a mouse gotcha okay when it comes to indie development, you know, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of great aspects to it. You know, there's more exposure than there's ever been. Um, you know, there's a lot more things you can do. It's easier to make a game now, arguably, well, it's easier and harder at the same time now than it's ever been. Um, so with that in mind, when you approach the industry from kind of a more, I guess, nuanced perspective, when you're looking for kind of things that could be improved, right? Whether it's, there's some toxicity when it comes to player bases at this point, there's toxicity with publishers to a certain degree. Um, there's issues when it comes to funding. There's a lot of different things you could hit on. Um, so if you could, and obviously it's impossible to fix any issue in the gaming industry without, you know, a, a lot of repercussions at this point but if you could kind of focus on one element of the industry as something that needs improvement on what would it be for me it'd be underrepresentation. okay yeah as a black developer this is something that i've kind of been very vividly aware of mm -hmm. is that there's very 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 few mm -hmm. of us like even disproportionately to 
being like 13% of the population, mm -hmm. um, only like 1% of video game developers are black. Yeah. And so like, um, John Bentley, the voice of, uh, Daryl from a final fantasy, mm -hmm. uh, made a point like PAX two years ago to go around and take a picture with every black developer you could find. And it was me and one other guy. And that was it. He kind of found two in the entire convention showroom floor. Yeah. And it's very, very uh, common in uh, game dev to be the only black uh, member on your team, sometimes in your company. And it's kind of a vicious cycle because you look around, you see nobody like you and you assume, oh, it's because I don't belong here. That's why. But I also come from academia. Mm -hmm. uh, I small known fact is um, I have a uh, I went to grad school for bioengineering okay. before I did game dev. Yeah. And when I was doing that, I was something called a Meyerhoff Scholar, which is a program that addresses the same issue mm -hmm. um, under representation of minorities in science, technology, engineering, math. They found that disproportionately black students, even um, black students would drop out of school or not graduate with a degree at much higher rates than their non-black classmates, even from the same background. Okay. So taking away um, socioeconomic differences and the fix was just networking mm -hmm. um they made us very vividly aware of all the other meyerhoff scholars they made us study together live together um give each other support and just that alone made um our program have a 95 percent advanced degree uh receiving rate compared to the 50 percent national average in stem okay so i feel like in the industry, I think I just like to see a concerted effort from minority developers to network, support each other, reach out, um, both prospective and existing developers. Just because I think, A, it'll be, we'll, we'll just start, as soon as that happens, we'll just start seeing so many new types of stories, characters, uh, diversity, I think is really just the kiln of, of creativity. Mm -hmm. You'll just see so many things you didn't even expect to see, yeah. just because there's more you know minds at the table now. I know a lot of people will just kind of hear diversity, think, oh, you know, like, uh, my, you know, no, no, political justice, social justice, yeah, whatever. But I'm really not, I'm really, really not de like demanding black characters or demanding black stories or forcing anybody to hire yeah. uh, black developers as much as I'm just saying, hey, I think us black developers need to do a better job at networking so we don't have so many people falling through the cracks here. What I would add, I guess, for me specifically is for someone that interviews a ton of developers and is constantly trying to network i think about six or seven months back initially when i first started i really didn't care who i i wanted quality in the project and that was it i didn't care about you know who the developers really were and i would bring them in and i would talk to them and you know we would explore their games and things of that nature and it was something that i did notice every single developer was was just a white dude and there's nothing you know there's nothing wrong with that obviously but as somebody who interviews yeah. developers i wanted to i wanted to have a a representation of a wider i guess net of developers out there and so i i did try to go out of my way to find primarily female developers and minority developers and mm -hmm. it did surprise me because i found quite a few female developers and I did find minority developers, but it's harder to find minority developers, which did kind of, it shouldn't have, but it did surprise me because I never really realized there is kind of, 
there's just not a lot of minority developers out there. And I was just very surprised by that. It was never something that struck me as an issue within the industry until I kind of explored it. So you are right. It's it's definitely something that it deserves to be addressed within the industry. And it's, um, I mean, especially when you see, um, or at least you see the attempts of industry, including black characters and black stories, mm -hmm. it's not surprised that the players are up in arms about tokenism and, you know, uh, diversity quotas when, from an industry that is ninety, you know, that is ninety nine percent non black, yeah. trying to write a black character. Basically, I'm not, you know, the, whenever people kind of hear me talking, they might assume that I'm saying that we need to start doing even more of that. But what I'm actually saying is just to cultivate a a, a network of of well trained, well net, uh, networked black developers, mm -hmm. and then just have people write what they want to make. Yeah, and then as a product, we'll just see more black stories, more black characters coming from a place of. Uh, love and experience as opposed to tokenism mm. and it, i mean they're, they're, you, you you don't really stand to lose anything from just having more developers out there you know no <laughs> no not at all but more <laughs> yeah. yeah especially today because i mean i talked to a couple different developers recently they've been industry they've been in the industry for like one of them was 20 plus the other one was 10 plus years and they have been citing the issue where the problem right now is AAA companies, one of them cited the reason that they're kind of scooping up and acquiring all these smaller indie studios is they just can't find developers. It's just, it's hard right now, especially coding at this point. I mean, it's just, there's not enough of them out there to create these massive AAA titles at this point, or just to keep the ball rolling. Like, cause there's so much demand and the demand does not meet the quota of developers out there. So you're right. Yeah. I mean, you, there's always room for more developers. And in fact, we, definitely need more at this point in the industry yes especially now that you're seeing a lot of titles coming from one man teams or less like, yeah uh or less no <laughs> no man teams <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so from one man teams mm. like devolver digital huge company mm. dozens of their games one man teams yeah. like it's 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 just becoming more and more accessible for individual developers to turn over honestly industry level work mm -hmm. and so like when you're thinking that a single person can be the difference between, uh, uh, you know, 2022's smash hit yeah. game and nothing at all. It's kind of, you know, it really makes you think every, it really does matter down to the person who's getting weeded out and who isn't. Mm -hmm. Things like Stardew, which only had one developer behind it all. Like it's just. Yes. Yeah, just imagine no Stardew, yep. no Undertale, no encryption, you know, like these are, these are largely single person efforts yeah. that. Had they just decided to put it down, never would have come out. Mm. And I mean, you can fall into that category now too, because with, <laughs> with I'm serious with everything I've seen from your game, there's a lot of major buzz behind it, which is really impressive to see, especially because it's outside of the box. You know, it's a visual novel. It's not, it's not your top-down platformer. It's not your FPS. Like it's its own thing, which I think really when you do it well, which you did, that's what kind of draws attention to it because it's exciting and it's new and people are used to it. So it's always really interesting to see like something new in the industry that, that people aren't used to seeing. So and I think the longer, more you crank up the types of backgrounds you're bringing people from, the more and more you're going to see mm. that as well. Yeah. And with your game, I, when I was looking through the different games to reach out to, when I saw your game, I was just like scrolling through steam, trying to figure out and compiling my list. And I remember clicking on your game. And as I'd mentioned, I don't 
play visual novels and I'm trying to make a concerted effort to reach out to different games, even though it's not something that I would typically play. I was like, you know what? I want to try to figure out what the game's all about. So I clicked on it and my girlfriend was sitting next to me at the time and she looked over and she go, oh, market player played that game. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she goes, yeah. And she was like, he, he, he has a couple videos of it and he really liked it. And I was like, oh, and she was like, it's a cool game. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's, let's hit him up then. So that's that's the that's where it came from. So I, and I'm glad I did because, like I said, when I reached into it, I kind of looked at the game. There's a lot of really cool elements to it that excited me. So when I was at PAX last weekend, um, I kept hearing Markiplier come up. It was kind of really funny because, like, I have people get like one of everything, mm -hmm. sucker for love, from the merch booth. Like they they get all the posters. They ask me to sign them, and they have like stars in their eyes. And then they'd be like, I can't wait to go home and play it. Because <laughs> they just watch it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I the first time I heard it, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was because a lot of people had watched the playthrough yep. that Markiplier did. Yep. It's almost, I've almost heard, it was like a three to one ratio of people of having watched the game versus actually played it themselves, mm -hmm. which is fine. But it was still kind of really surprising just how much. Uh, tertiary buzz there was about the game with yeah. people who hadn't played it themselves. It's interesting because nowadays you have Let's Play is such a huge genre for people. They love watching it, but it really changes how you approach game development because like you'd mentioned, like people love watching games, but are they actually going to play it? And that's kind of the end. That's the end play right there. You want them to watch it, love it, and then come in and play it. And it's just it's this whole another animal nowadays than what it used to be. So yeah. it's really cool to see. Um, for me, it's, I think a game is a win if I can get a player to think about it when they're not playing it. Yeah, and that's exactly what Let's Plays do, so it's perfect. Especially for you, because you got one of the biggest Let's Players out there to do it, so that's <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah, that was surprising, I didn't expect that. I guess the only other thing I really have before I let you go, you'd mentioned you're kind of working on the second game right now, you have a third one planned. I don't know if you can really answer this one or not, but do you have like, do you have a window you want to shoot for at this point? or when it's done, it's done, and that's it. Uh, Sucker for Love 2 is later this year, Sucker for Love 3 next year. Okay.